Kia ora, we've got a double episode for you today with Melanie Paikia Tautalanoa and Manawa Wharepu Yudi. Mal and Manawa are the founders of Ngahiri Communities, a social enterprise championing the potential of South Auckland entrepreneurs, innovators and creators through collaborative spaces, common values and co-designed responsive programs. In this episode, we talk about social impact, business growth and the pair share their personal stories about their youth. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous Wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous Wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. We on. Oh, kia ora. <laughs> uh, it has been a very entertaining last couple of hours here in the Grid Monaco office with uh, our next two Nuku Wahine, who I feel a little bit strange recording this podcast because we're recording it in their podcast studio yeah. on, the, on their <laughs> podcast yeah. equipment. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm not in the driver's seat with the technical thing, so oh. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit... Out of my comfort zone, but totally comfortable. Awesome. Like it. Um, so I'm going to introduce you to two kaka swahine. We have Manawa Farepu Yudi. Kia ora. Kia ora, Kiani. And we also have Malani Paikia Tautalanoa. Kia ora. Who are also known as Bob and Bob. Aye. This is true. <laughs> and for the purposes of this podcast, I will call you Manu and Mel. Because <laughs> we don't want to be confusing everybody. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I will hand it over to each of you to introduce yourselves. And seeing as we were uh, debating over who was going to be which nuku number, um, we decided alphabetically that it would be Mel. So, <laughs> Mel, so do I get to introduce myself first? So we'll start with you. Who are you and where are you from? Oh, kia ora. Um, my name is Melanie Paikiotautilanoa, as you said, Kiani. Um, I was uh, <laughs> actually born and raised in Australia, uh, moved to New Zealand in 2002. Um, I think I was about 26 years old at the time. and But my parents are both from New Zealand. My dad hails from up north, from Ngāti Whātua. My mum from Te Arua, from um, Ngāti Whakaue. And yet yeah, moved here in 2002 after my parents had lived in Australia for many, many years. They decided to come back home. And I followed them not too long after. And it has been, um, I can't believe it, it's been nearly 20 years since I've moved moved home. Wow. And um, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else now. Uh, it was a bit of an adjustment when I first got here, but I honestly couldn't imagine going back to Australia or moving away from like home, from my home and my land. And yeah, I love it. Um, and it's been, I can't believe it's been 20 years. It's been a great ride and there's been heaps of ups and downs along the way since I've been here. But um, loving, I think, Life right now, right now where I am and what we're doing, yeah. Kia ora. And what about you, Manoa? Where, where are you from? Oh. Who are you? <laughs> Ko waia, kia ora tato. <laughs> Ko manawa wharepu tōku ingoa, he uri ahaun o ngā, o ngā rangatira o te aroa, o mātātua, me tainui huki. Um, I tipua ki au ki Rotorua, um, ki te taho te, te Rotorua nui o Kahumata Momoe. Uh, ko Whakapangākau te pai maunga, ko... Um, 
ko Pukipoto te tihira, ko Waingahe te awa, ko te Rotorua nui a kahu te moana, uh, ko uh, Mokoya te motitapu a te nirau, uh, ko Ofata te marae, ko Hinemoa, rawa ko Tutane kai o Kutupuna. Mm. Ai, ai, ko Ngāti Whakaue te hapu, o te iwi actually, ko Ngāti te roro te rangi te, te hapu, ko te aroa te waka. So kia ora, born and raised in Rotorua, um, but have been here in South Auckland uh, since 2003. Um, just chasing my dreams, I suppose, and, and being a hotutu in this place that offers heaps of opportunity. And um, I love it here, being here in Manukau, um, on the shores of Te Manukanuka or Hotoroa. I love being by the water, so it's nice to be here, mm. um, to be in Yorohe Kare and, and to be able to enjoy the whenua up here as well. So, yeah, that's where I'm from and, and, and how I grew up. And how did you two meet? Because you guys are. Best mates, you're pretty much siblings. You're, you, you, Manawa, look after Mal's kids as if they're your own. Yeah. <laughs> She's like the unofficial godmother. <laughs> yeah. How did, how did All this, the work, no where perks. Did, no. Where did this relationship start? How did you two yeah. meet? Yeah, well, we both, no, we both only have brothers, so it is quite cool to have someone that's like a sister. Um, but we, uh, we met at our church. Hey, I yeah. think we were working... Mel was working and I was an intern or student and we ended up um, in the same office together and getting up to the same kind of no good. So I think that was actually how we started to connect. Oh, yes. Because mm. we were just hotutu. And I guess in the in the church environment that we were in, um, it is there's is not so many Māori and so it's easy to connect with other Māori and then even more so when they're tutu just like you, eh? Yeah, I think... Um we didn't hit it off. Can I tell the story about how yeah. we very first met and how this will paint a little bit <laughs> of a picture you, eh? Sorry. <laughs> how inappropriate Manua can be, her sense of humour, <laughs> which I have now come to accustom to and actually love. But we didn't really know each other that well and she had found out somehow or other that I had a kid when I was 16. And when she, I'm sure you just Maybe I me. said that. I was like, oh, I had my first daughter when I was 16 and she was like, oh, you slut. <laughs> Wow. And then we became, yeah. Best mates. mates. (laughs) Born and raised in Rotorua. (laughs) Now, I want to talk a little bit about that because, not not about being a slut, um, (laughs) but I want to talk about being born and raised because, Mel, you you were raised in Australia and disconnected from Aotearoa for 26, did you say? 26 years. So you both have really different upbringings. What was it like growing up in Australia was there much connection to te ao Māori, te ao Māori culture? Because given both of your parents have whakapapa Māori, um, was that able to be transferred and translated over there? Um, I'd say mostly no, um, unfortunately. Mm. But then there were things about our whānau that were innately Māori that I didn't realise until I got older other families didn't do. Like something so simple as you know, pulling all the mattresses out into the lounge room on a Friday night, which was such the norm. Mm. Um, And then as I got older and I went to my mates' houses, I realised that like, or they came to our house and they'd see us do that and they were like, oh, you pull all the mattresses? And (laughs) and then I was like, oh, does everyone not not do this? (laughs) Like, So there was just, just things about us that were... I mean, our house was like a, 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 you know, train station. People came and went all the time. Um, 
my family. Yeah, so there were things about us that we just, we didn't fit in. Mm. When Mel goes to your house, she just susses out your whole pantry. <laughs> <laughs> like, stuff like that, eh? Just the way we were just brought up. <laughs> so, so she was still brought up as a Māori. Yeah, I, 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 like, I think there's things that were innately, didn't mm. fit in. If, if that makes sense. And um, it was really, I th- I'm, there's things about growing up in Australia that I'm so thankful for. I think it afforded me a pretty, um, maybe a wider perspective. Mm. And, and it made me able to, I think, go in between the Pākehā world and, and Māori world fairly comfortably. I don't, you know, I can go in between quite comfortably. And we grew up in an area where there was a lot of rich people. So a lot of my mates were wealthy growing up. So um, that, I think, as an adult, I'm never intimidated by by wealth, by people's money. And so I'm like, so I'm grateful for those things, but there's definitely things, like I think about what I missed out on not being able to grow up here. And I'm really grateful um, that my kids get to grow up here and experience a childhood here. Like, I, I, And I watch them and I think sometimes, man, I probably would have loved growing up like that as a kid, not, not so much of a city kid. Yeah. And so you had your first puppy at 16. Yeah. And you're now a nanny. Mm-hmm. A very young looking nanny, by the way. I was and, a and young still nanny. a young nanny. Yeah. Um, how many tamariki do you have now? I have six... So I had them in pairs, two by two, <laughs> couple in their 20s, couple in their teens, and then I got the littles, I call them, who are five and three. So I got two girls um, who are in their mid-20s, and my oldest girl has a seven-year-old son. So I've got a seven-year-old more call. And then I've got a 19- and 16-year-old boys, and they're still at home with me, and then a five-year-old girl and three-year-old son. What have you noticed in terms of your uh, approach to parenting with those three different age groups of your tamariki? I think when I was, uh, when I had my first daughter, I was so determined to prove everybody wrong, mm. being so young and um, going, because I had my first three babies in Australia and then I had my next three here in um New Zealand and so I think just the judgment of like the nurses and the midwives and the doctors and um, of me being so young and I looked probably 12 when I was 16, I looked really young Uh, and I think that made me so determined to be just a really good mum and prove everybody wrong and be like just because I'm a young mum doesn't mean I can't be a good mum. So I was really regimented like just kept my kids really in line and Mm. the house was super in order and I think that was my way of proving that I was a good mother. Um, I think as I've gotten older and just more secure in who I am as a woman and I think, you, you, you know, you gain a bit of life experience over the years and it changes your perspective on things. I'm a lot more... Patient, I say that loosely because then I'm also super impatient with some <laughs> things. But I'm more, I think I'm more patient to um, enjoy the time that I have with them, or maybe more purposeful is the right word. And like, just for instance, say on the weekend we were at <laughs> we were at um, Manua's house. Me and my two littles were there on Saturday, and we spent most of the day painting, painting um, flip, like wooden cutout things and rocks and. Um, 
just there's a, and and I was telling my older daughter who's 26 I was telling her how we spent a lot of time painting rocks with the two little ones and and she kind of looked at me like, oh, and I said to her, I know, darling, I'm really sorry <laughs> that I didn't let you express your creativity when you were younger because I didn't want her to make a mess. Mm. So just little things like that, I've just chilled out a lot more in those ways. Yeah. yeah. Not, not sweat so much the small stuff, I guess. And, and Manama, what about your upbringing? Because being brought up in Rotorua, mm. um, around your whanau, mm. what was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. I loved my upbringing. We, um, uh, I mean, you look back, I think hindsight, you get to see things you didn't see then. But we, um, my grandparents played a huge role in, in me growing up. My parents were both teachers, primary school teachers. Um, and so my, I would often be with my nan and my koro and some of my aunties um, and my cousins that were similar age to me before I started school and then like my first day at school my koro took me and they would often pick me up after school and every weekend um, our koro would take all of us out, all of us cousins and we'd go out and either pick watercress or pickle pickle or he'd take us to the whenua that, um, that was ours and show us around and make sure that we were connected to that. Um, and then as I grew older, because I was his oldest granddaughter, mm. So he would take me to a lot of the hui and, and tangi. And then once I could drive, I became his driver. So he would always ask me. And then like then I like started to get into drinking and stuff. And so I'd quite often be like hung over in the morning and Koro would ring up and be like, come on, we've got to go to this hui. And I'm like, oh, I can't get up. <laughs> I remember very clearly this one time, I think it was like New Year's Day and he rang me up and I was hung, I was really hung over. And I just said no to him. I'm not coming, I'm too tired. And he goes, okay, then hung the phone up and I just felt really guilty. Um, and I was maybe 10 minutes later, I rang him back and I was like, I'll come with you. <laughs> and so we went, we went and like he, I think he drove us there and then I drove us a little bit back and I was falling asleep. I was like, no, nah, you got to drive, Koro. And I, I crashed out and we got back. We got back, I don't know, by about lunchtime in time for a big New Year's kai with the whanau, but... Man, I treasure those times with him, eh, and with my nan as well. Mm. I feel like they really... My nan um, was always a cook and a, and a housekeeper, and that was her That was her life. She devoted her life to the whanau. Yeah. And so she instilled heaps of that in me to the point where I hated it sometimes. I'd be like, if you go to nan's after school, come about four o'clock, that's you, you're on the potatoes, then you're on the meat, then you're on the all the way through to all the dishes at the end. So, But all of that stuff, I'm so thankful for now that, mm. that they taught me that and connected me into all the different marae that we're connected to. And even though those those connections aren't strong now, I still feel that that, that I don't know, provided some stability for me that I don't, I know that I don't even need to have super strong connections there to know that, that, that I'm from here. Yeah. Um, yeah. You guys do, um, you have done lots of different kinds of mahi over mm. the years. And... We a lot of the time when we look at people who are successful or people who are doing really amazing transformational things, we don't often reflect on their own journeys mm. and some of the transformational things that happened in their lives. Yeah. What I want to ask each of you is, what is something that happened or has happened in your life that was a real transformational point for you? Mm. That maybe things weren't going the right way or things were in a really shit space, but there was something in there that really helped to transform who you are. Mm. I can start on that. I remember really clearly the, the, 
year that I was 20 and turning 21, I I had, um, I was in like my second year, I think, at what was like a, a three-year diploma in professional photography and I was living down in Palmerston North. Um, and all these things happened that year, like... Um, I went. I won this really prestigious award in photography and kind of got my name out there. And then my niece was born. She was kind of like the first one of the next generation, and it was really meaningful um, for her to come along. And then my koro passed away, and that was a big thing for our whole Fano. And then I turned 21, and then I became a Christian, and it all kind of all happened in this one year that felt really like, even when I look back on it, man, it was just a crazy year because I was also like, I drank heaps and I smoked, like, loved marijuana and, you know, I was just living the student lifestyle. <laughs> but coming into this, into the season, just everything felt like it changed. Everything changed. And so I remember coming through the other side of the season and, and well, that, I guess becoming a Christian was the last thing that happened there that really started turning me in a whole new direction. And it was really funny because... Growing up, my koro was against the church, like hard out. And so even becoming a Christian, I, it took me a while to even be able to say it out of my mouth, like mm. I've found this faith that I really believe in. Um, but it had that, I guess, was a big turning point for me because that started me on a whole new journey of understanding myself in, the, in a different context to what I already knew. Mm. And I think part of moving away from home and moving from a place like Rotorua to a place like Palmerston North, like I feel like they're almost extreme opposites. Like yeah. I grew up, and just being Māori was just how you were and being in Palmerston North, like being Māori was was really, like you stuck out like a sore thumb um, and I wasn't really used to that. So that was a big turning point for me, but I think it, what it did help me do is it helped me overcome my addictions. It helped me find, I guess, purpose in myself. One thing I've always struggled with was a bit of self-esteem um, and, and having value in myself. And, and through my Christian faith, I was really able to work on that and discover just who I am, just as a just as a being, like just you just are created and you're loved, and and just that is enough. Mm. You don't have to have all these other things to say that you're good or not good or or anything like that. So yeah, that was a big turning point for me. And then after that, I moved up to Auckland to pursue my career in photography and and kind of carry on in my my life journey. Yeah. What about you, Mel? Um, there's so many. <laughs> but I do think one of the most defining moments for me was um, I, th I went through a relationship breakdown um, in my marriage and coming out of... It was quite an abusive relationship, physically, emotionally abusive. And um, I, had, I had got married really, really young when I got pregnant, a bit mm. of a shotgun wedding. And, and that didn't work out because I didn't really love the guy like, you should love a husband and, you know, we remained good mates and great co-parents of our girls but I got married a second time and I really loved this guy and um, found myself in this situation that I had only kind of read about and judged other people of being in and I suddenly found myself on in the same situation. Um, you know, uh, Manua mentioned we grew up with you know, older brothers only both being the youngest and only girls in our family. So I think for me, I was always quite treasured in my family as the only girl, the youngest, um, mm. three older brothers. I only ever saw my dad treat my mum with respect and love and my brothers, me the same. So to find myself in this relationship um, and to, I think one of the hardest things was to do was to admit it to my family mm. and it wasn't even that I actually um, 
admitted it to them. It was more that I couldn't hide it. It kind of got to the point where I couldn't uh, hide it. They were like, what happened to your face? You know, I couldn't hide yeah, it away so anymore, you know. there's so many times you can say you walked into the door. Eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. And so I think just walking that journey out and, and realising how ashamed I felt that I'd found myself in this situation and weak, which was not who I was as a person. And, and I think what happens when you're in that situation is it chips away at your confidence, but in such a slow uh, way that you just don't notice it. You don't notice that it's chipping away at who you are each day. And so I think finding the strength, it was actually while I was working at church where I met uh, Manua there, I, I just had such an incredible uh, team of people around me. I think that just helped me uh, push me into the dis- like where I needed to go to just make the decision to end that relationship. And then that that was a very long, arduous, frightening, sometimes life threatening, you know, journey just to get to get out of that and cut that um, cut that tie. But that I think um, what that changed for me is that it real I realised. Uh, how strong I actually was, like how I could, I walked through all this, uh, like when I think about it now, I'm like, I can't believe I even found myself in those situations. Um, But I came through the other side uh, still with, you know, joy, positivity, and I found a strength that I I started to um, uh, rebuild, I think, who I was and who I knew that I was, but I'd forgotten um, and remembering all of that. And I think I've just gone from that point, I've just gone from strength to strength. But mm. that was definitely a really defining period of time and an intense sort of 18 months. Like, I mean, I think the whole journey was about three years, but there was a real intense 18 months in there that was just insane. And yeah. And I can imagine um, how difficult it would have been to even decide to leave because there are a number of women that I know uh, in my life who have been in situations similar to yours, who are still in situations similar to what you were once in and haven't found, I wouldn't say haven't found the courage because it's not even about that. They haven't been able to make the decision to leave and for varying reasons. Um, What was one of those what was one of the key things that made you feel safe to leave? I think because I, I had a great support network. My mm. family was super supportive. I had great friends around me. I had great colleagues and bosses around me that were really championing me on and whatever decision I made. Um, uh, I totally forgot what the actual question was. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that made you feel safe to leave? Or not, not, not what was it, but I guess when I'm thinking about these situations, you know, there are so many women in Aotearoa today yeah. who mm. who are, are still in abusive relationships and there are a lot, it's easy for those of us that are on the outside to say, you need to go, you need to do this, you need mm. to do that. But actually it's not that easy to just make that decision. There are so many things that women will consider and it will be their own physical safety, the safety mm. of their whanau, their children, like the fact whether or not they have money to go you know there are so many Mm. factors that people will bring into their consciousness to go can I actually leave even though they know that's not a good situation for them to be in 
So it's more so like what wasn't the one point, but maybe what is it that others can start building for themselves for when they're ready to leave, they feel safe enough to leave. And and one of the things you did say was you shared it with your family. Yeah, and honestly, that was one of the hardest things I I ever had to do. I Because I knew that it could bring a irreparable crack to the relationship that my then partner had with my family. Mm. And I didn't know if I wanted it to be over with him at the time. So yeah. it was really scary telling my super overprotective brothers that, you know, this guy had been treating me this way and what if they hate him for the rest of our lives. And so there's so many... There's such an untangling that needs to take place um, in your mind as well. And I think it was just a culmination of that, a culmination of the fact that I had my family being like, nah, that's, you know, I think the fact that we went, we tried all the help that you can possibly get, counselling, psycho, you know, psychologists, psychotherapy, um, individual counselling, group counselling, anger management and still after all of that there was um, just this, I can remember the day clearly we had an argument and he still got physical Mm -hmm. and I just thought to myself he's never going to change. We've been through all of this stuff and he still has not changed. He still cannot control his anger. And I just thought, this this is going to be the rest of my life if I don't make a decision now. And it was hard because I felt guilty because it, it doesn't just affect you. It, like you said, it affects your children. It affects your family because, you know, everyone's tied up in this marriage, not just you. Um, so there is, it's so hard. It's so complex and it's so, and I loved him. That was that was probably the hardest thing is that I really, really did love him and I wanted to believe that he could change. And um, I think he just continually proved to me time and time again that he could he he wouldn't. Mm. Yeah. You both um, talked about your Christian faith and it's a topic that we often discuss on Nuku um, because Christianity is often weaponized and used as a weapon against Indigenous people as part of colonisation. And we talk about um, Christianity and uh, how it has an effect on the way that Māori understand, reclaim mātauranga and different belief systems that we have as Māori. And I want to talk to you both about that Mm. and ask you how or if you are still able to fit in a Māori belief system and a Christian belief system and how that works for you, if it does or if it doesn't. Is it ever conflicting? Because it is a topic that we discuss unintentionally almost all the time when we talk about reviving Mātauranga Māori, um, Mātauranga Pacifica and how um, a lot of our colonisation comes back to the fact that Christianity has been weaponized against yeah. indigenous peoples around the world. Yeah. It's definitely a topic that I talk about heaps, mm. like get into some hard out conversations about. And yeah, it is conflicting. It's a it's a live tension, I reckon, that you never fully get rid of. I don't think that, and I don't even think the absence of tension is really what you want. I think it's the tension that makes it important. Um, I think the fact that... Um, like Christianity is not a Pākehā religion, that's the thing, but it has been made to be that or the what we come in touch with is a Pākehā version or mm. a westernised version, but it is not. It's a freaking, what is he, Arabic or, or something mm, like yeah. that. It's, it's, an, it's an old religion from old people 
Um, and it's a it's a story of love and a story of hope. And I think that when you boil it down, that's what it is, and that's what I think attracts me to that. Um, as a as a faith, I think trying to reconcile Maori and Christianity, yeah, it is something that you always that I always I wouldn't say struggle with. I don't think struggle is the right word anymore. I feel like I've, I'm okay with it within myself, but I have struggled in the past. Um, but I think some of the things that really like give me, uh, I guess, make me love it even more is when you look at some of the like foundational, like like the creation stories, the creation stories that come from the Bible and the creation stories that come from our tupuna are almost exactly the same. Like you look at, you look at Hineahuone who was formed out of clay by Tane Mahuta and then you look at um, Eve who was formed out of clay and breathed life into by Adam like there's so many and then you look at how before um, the earth was formed there was darkness and stillness and then there was light and then there was um, the earth and the sky. Like the stories are just so similar that I think if you if you trace it back to the, the origin and the source of where this all comes from, it is all just the same. And it's kind of like this humongous generation, intergenerational game of Chinese whispers <laughs> that ends up coming to you in whatever form through whoever Chinese whispered it their way to you. Um, so I think there's some of those things really help me to just kind of settle in, in what matters there and to not get stuck in different people's interpretation um, and different people can be forceful and people do use it all the time, even now, like even in the church that I'm in, you know, you have instances with people where you disagree with them and you disagree with their version of Christianity or the way they deliver it. And I think that's just a fact of life. It happens on the marae as well. It happens, you know, with all kinds of tikanga. Um, so, yeah, and then within Christianity as well, there's this thing. I mean, I studied, I did a three-year two-year course at Bible College, which did help me with the knowledge side of things and unpacking it and unpacking it. Um, and there are things within Christianity that are like, um, they call them dogma or they're things that are the truth that can't be, you have to believe this in order for you mm. to be a Christian. But they're nothing to do with a lot of the things you think. They're nothing to do with the way that you act or the, um, the things that you do, oh, that's the same thing, eh? Or sometimes even the things that you believe. There's only a very few things within Christianity that, that form Christianity in its essence. The rest of it is just interpretation. And I think that when you can, when you boil it down like that, it, it is a lot easier. I'll hand it over to you though, Bob. Yeah, I mean, I grew up completely different. So yeah. um, I grew up in Australia in the church um, and in a, a like, well, it's come to be a you know mega church, all I've ever known. Um, to move back here and realise that we were colonised, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that was new for me. You know, it was learning about that was like I was angry. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was when I went to uni and we did we we did a whole paper around the. Tariti and and I learned so much stuff and I remember how emotional that was for me because it was like all new it was like I had been lied to my whole life so it's been a real reverse journey for me I think um but but I think I can't separate who I am from my faith it's it's all I've ever known yeah mm. but it is I love the idea that it's just different learnings and perspectives but if you boil it down it's just the same thing I, um, when you were talking about that, I, I suddenly had this flash of um, the movie where Cliff Curtis plays Jesus mm. and um, they call him Yeshua mm. because that 
is his indigenous name. Yeah. And I have had a real internal conflict, married to a Christian, um, <laughs> real internal conflict with how I feel about Christianity and the teachings of the Bible and church and, and with the context of being brought up knowing full well around colonisation and Indigenous mm. rights and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but watching Cliff Curtis play Jesus was really settling for me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, oh, it's a Māori and he's brown and he's got an Indigenous name. I can I can jam with that for a little <laughs> while. Like it just, it, did, it wasn't as jarring as yeah, yeah. what I have experienced and seen in the blonde other, haired, blue eyed yeah, Jesus. In yeah, other, in other instances. And so it really helped me to even just want to have a conversation with somebody about it mm. um, because it was far less angry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a far less angry response yeah, to yeah. seeing an image of someone who probably actually did look like that, but because colonisation also mm. changed the story mm. yeah, of yeah. this person. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's been a... It's been an interesting personal journey for me too. <laughs> I remember when you, one time, I must have put a story up or something of us sharing communion and then you, you like messaged me, how do you do communion if you're keto? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember yeah. that? Because I'm like, I genuinely want to know. You just have, don't you have lettuce bread? I genuinely ask. <laughs> and it's so funny because I have, I have, there's a lot of people in my world who are Christians who I love. Yeah. Um, and who, like that, yeah, like you guys. <laughs> um, and who it is part of your identity. And I just, sometimes I come out with these questions and I'm, and I'm just like, but how does that work? And I'm so glad that my friends, just answer them for me because yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. sometimes I can be asking questions that if it were in a church context, I think I'd probably be like... The troublemaker. Leave. <laughs> <laughs> Leave now. Oh, that one. <laughs> Here's a little trespass notice for you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how you made it in the door without bursting into flames. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, moving along, guys, moving along. That's more the devil, <laughs> not Jesus. We're going to well. talk about politics next. <laughs> I love talking about politics. Don't get me started. Um, I do, however, however, um, I mean, everything is political. Our identities are political and working in community is hugely political because when we're working with rangatahi, yeah, when we're working with um, Māori and Pacifica people, when we're working in South Auckland, you know, everything is political because that is, it's determined whether or not we get funding for something. It's how society is going to view us. It's whether people are going to invest in this business or not in this business because politically this is how they've been formed and, and influenced to see the world. Mm. You guys are both based in the hub of South Auckland. You um, work in social enterprise, I guess is the best way to talk about it. And you probably have better, better words to describe it. a great word, it, but great couple of words. <laughs> in social enterprise. And before we talk about the mahi that you're doing now, what has led you to this point? What have been some of the, the roles that you have played leading up to you both deciding that you were going to create... Ngahere, now is it Ngahere Communities? Ngahere, Ngahere Inc. Ngahere Inc. Ngahere the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. We did build an empire. You we're working, have, we're working you, you on that. Out of Lego. On it. Yeah, you very, but you very quickly built an empire. But what, what has led you to this 
point, what have been some of those key roles that you have played out in community and mm. through your creative endeavours yeah, yeah. that have got you here so, like, to date? Yeah, for me, I um, so I studied photography, eh, and then I moved to Auckland. I moved to Tamaki to to pursue my career as a commercial photographer, so looking in more the kind of advertising space, you know, commercial. Not so, not so much portraits and weddings, but more advertising, packaging, promotion, stuff like that. Um, and then that, like, pretty quickly, I was really disillusioned with that whole industry. Um, it was it was cutthroat. Like, you had to have a lot of money to even get started which I didn't have. I didn't have access to that at all. The one thing I had going for me is that people knew my name because of the how well I had done in, in one of the national comps the year before. But, yeah, really quickly I was like, no, nah, there was no satisfaction for me in, in what I found myself doing. And I had ticked off one of my goals, which was to see some of my work on a billboard. I ticked it off pretty quickly and it was really underwhelming. Like, it was like... <laughs> This I was is my not life's dream. I was oh. yeah, and it wasn't that look I was giving you outside. It was a totally different look. Um, and so I pretty quickly made the decision just to leave it. And I um, I started volunteering. This was around at the same time I had just become a Christian, so I was a new Christian, and I was learning what it was like to be involved in this type of community. Um, because I was the oldest in my whanau and my generation, I had always been the tuakana. and so I was always used to looking after the younger ones. It's, and I even see it now. I feel like I relate with people that are younger than me better than I relate with people that are older than me. Um, and so I had this just innate, um, I guess, love for young people. And so I kind of followed that more um, and just a heart for my younger cousins and my whanau. And so I worked in um, youth development for ages and then like as a, worked, oh, like volunteered as a youth leader for ages within my church where I learned a lot about how to um, listen to young people, how to understand their challenges you know, and, and young people can be can be tough sometimes, especially when they come in with their mental health <laughs> challenges and, and addictions or suicide, self-esteem for a lot of the girls and stuff. So I learnt a lot of that just by volunteering um, and then ended up working in that area and then ended up working at Auckland Council and community development as well. So I was based in, based in a youth centre in, in Mount Ross School when we were designing programmes for the community, but then also... Um, working with the broader community. And Mount Roscoe's a really dynamic community because it's super diverse ethnically. Um, there's lots of um, there's lots of poverty right next to lots of affluence. So they're really close together. Um, and then there's lots of really territorial um, communities within that community as well. So as they're super dynamic, the police are really involved in everything that goes on there. So I learnt heaps through doing that and through working at Auckland Council and I learnt a lot about politics by working there. So I always consider my five years at council to be my university degree because I learnt a lot both community side and then the politician side because I also had to work with the politicians and the bureaucrats. Um, and then that was where like, so we, that's where I really started to focus in on the power of entrepreneurship for personal and community development um, and how you could use that to build your skill set, build your confidence, but then also build your economic base and, and take what you have to create what you need. Um, so that was kind of where my turning point came and I got to the point where I was like, okay, I'm, uh, my creativity is not being used in council. If anything, it's been shut down. Um, I'm talking about entrepreneurship, but I'm not doing it. I need to get out of here. So I made the call to move um, and left council and just kind of went self-employed. I obviously had something set up for me to do um, but that was where it started, so that was a good five five years ago now. Mm. Yeah, 
And then not a couple of years after that, we started out in Ngahere. So those were kind of my main main pieces along the way. But going back into having a business of my own was where I wanted to bring back my creativity and my, my storytelling ability alongside my interest in impact-driven you know, initiatives and programs and entrepreneurship. They kind of culminated into what was Bob and Bob Creative. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Mel, you 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 grew up as a bit of a hustler. Totally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was. I like. I I think about it now when I look back. You know, at being young. But I mentioned before about growing up with wealthy friends. Mm. Um, our family had enough, but not you know enough for mum and dad to afford for us to do all these you know fun as expensive things in the holidays. So I started hustling from a young age. Um, just doing what I could to make money. I'd spend my term like planning out what I could do to make money for the holidays at the end so that I'd have the money to do what all my mates were doing. And I would just um, bake and sell my baking door to door. I would walk neighbours. If I saw new neighbours that would move in that had dogs, I'd like go and knock on their door and be like, I can walk your dogs if you need someone to be your dog walker <laughs> or if you need me to like How much did you charge? I, I remember getting a, a couple dollar. of bucks. <laughs> yeah. I remember like begging the lady down at the local shop to give me a job. I think I stood there for like two hours at the register until she was finally like, fine, come Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> And then she just then she <laughs> sold her shop and moved just yeah. so you didn't have to work for her. Just wore her down and make scrunchies. Like I can't even sew. And I'd make scrunchies and sell them door to door, I'd babysit, do whatever I could to make money. Um and I can remember watching my parents' friends talking about going to work because we'd often have friends over on a Sunday night after church and then them talking about like, oh, I gotta get up for work tomorrow and like they would say things like, Oh, the Monday blues and I would hear comments like that and it would be so hard for me to fathom from a quite a young age. Like, mm. I couldn't imagine living your life doing a job like nine to five that you hated. Like, it was just like, that, there's got to be more to life. And the thought of that, that was what I was heading into as an adult was quite depressing to me. Like, I don't want to spend the rest of my life doing, you know, something I don't love doing. Um, but then in saying that, I left school super early and ended up doing a whole lot of jobs that I didn't love doing. Uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> But I think um, innately for me, I, I love people, always have loved people and have always loved hearing their stories, telling stories. And I think by nature, I'm a connector. I love mm-hmm. to connect people up and to see them, like see that connection fruit into something. Um, for me, is super exciting. And so I, I think from a young age, I always wanted to have my own business, but I had no idea how to do it. And um, when I was working in, at church, I think that was incredible for building my confidence and just leadership skills. And I learned a whole lot of things there that um, probably helped me to set, or helped to set me up um, for where we are now, including, I think, meeting... Um, meeting Manoa, I think we would talk about their name, about, oh, one day let's start our own business. And so I um, have always loved baking and then have always loved storytelling and did do a bit of like TV production work. And that's how we started to sort of blend in the elements of like what I knew and then the skill sets and the relationships that Manoa had as well to 
um, create was what was what what was Bob and Bob Creative, which when we started we didn't even really know what was what it was going to be. Eh? No. Like let's start a business. What are we going to do? Mm, I think our I think our mission statement was to do the things we love with the people we love, or something along that. Eh? Yeah. Live the life we want to live and do the things we want to do with, with the, the people. people we yeah. yeah. And that was about it. So what that looked like, we had to figure out. Yeah. So, tell me about this empire. Because <laughs> I was, I knew you both when this empire started mm. and have watched it grow and flourish and have watched it transform and influence and inspire and have watched it shift identities. And it has been a beautiful journey to look, watch from the outside. Um, Aww. And to see the impact that it Aww. makes in and around the community with mm. the people that you're working with. And so tell us, <laughs> because we've got Ngahere Inc., but now we also have all of the bits that filter down from that, mm. including Kone, including Tukua, including Ngahere Foundation, and like all of these other things. So... Let's just rattle off what they are. Yeah, cool. Do you want to try, Bob? <laughs> she always makes me do this. I part. do always make her do this, but that's true. So we have the. Um, no, like that's wrong. <laughs> no. <Nah. laughs> and you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> you can't fire me. <laughs> um, Nahere Inc., which is um, the overall like umbrella that covers all the other businesses. And then under that sits. Um, Nahere Communities, which which runs Grid Monaco, which outworks everything that happens in the space that we have down here. Um, we have Nahere Foundation, which drives all the impact-driven work that we do, which is um, like we're outworked through uh, workshops, co-design programs. Um, how am I doing now? <laughs> then we've got... How's she doing, Kiani? Keep going. Keep going. We've got Nahere Creators. You didn't even say Tukua. I haven't got... Oh, yeah, under the foundation. Damn it. <laughs> so um, Tukua, our Tukua program runs out of Nahere Foundation uh, or under Nahere Foundation, I should say. And that, is, that outworks all of our entrepreneurial innovation development workshopping programs, co-design. And it has different streams to that as well. So it has different focuses. Tukua Wahine, which focuses on women and e-commerce. Tukua NextGen, which focuses on 17 to 24-year-olds that have um, an online an idea that can be turned into an online business with a bit of a seed fund. Um, we have Tukua Toy, which is our creative career service delivery, so focused on geez, 16 to 84-year-olds um, who want to inc- increase either their creative income through employment or self-employment. 18 to 64. <laughs> 84. Is it? It's actually 16 84. 16 to 84? Yeah. Damn. Yeah. You're fired, man. <laughs> <laughs> You're out. <laughs> Sorry, my bad, my bad, my bad. I'll shush. Um, where did I get to? Did I get to Corne yet? No. So we've done Ngahere Inc., Ngahere Foundation. We've done Tukua. Uh, we've done... Ngahere Communities Ngahere with Grid Monaco. Communities with Grid Monaco, which is a co-working space. Yeah. You've and done the different elements of Tukua. And then we've got... Did I get to... Oh, so we did Corne. 
which is our online commerce, um, <laughs> commerce online <laughs> e-commerce store um, for Aotearoa. And Hang on, kone.nz for those that want to go and yeah. search that online. An online marketplace for Aotearoa brands. It's an online marketplace for Aotearoa brands. <laughs> Not an online e-commerce store for Aotearoa. <laughs> I mean, pretty close, pretty close. Keep going, keep going. You're doing all right, you're doing all right. <laughs> Come on, bub. Um, this is what happens when you follow the overachievers and you have too many things oh, to talk about. tell me about it. Tell Overachiever. About it. I don't know if anyone's ever used that word to describe me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to claim it. Yeah, I like that. Mm. Um, Nahere Creators. Oh, yeah. Which is our creative team. Oh, Bob, speak to that. I won't do it justice. Yeah, so this um, sits under Ngahiri Communities as well. So you have a team of creatives, um, which is actually my kind of, out of everything, this is my baby. baby this is the yeah. thing that I love. Because as a photographer coming up and all the all the challenges that I faced, that essentially stopped me from chasing my, or achieving my dreams as a photographer, um, I think that's really got me passionate about making those or removing those barriers for the incredible like pool of talented creatives in South Auckland. Like yeah. it is like a ripe harvest field, a ripe field for harvest of creative ability here in South Auckland. We were talking about it the other day and I was like, and no one's there's, there's no, no harvester. harvesters. Like we just and so I feel a little bit like we're building a harvester. Like how do we take this raw potential and then and then find a way that, you know, whether it's I don't have the equipment, I don't have the connections, I don't know how to use my creativity for to make money or even if I did, I don't know how to show up on time or, <laughs> or talk. There's a, a lot of it is that, like just giving them some professional skills. Um, and so we try and just remove all of those barriers and provide opportunity so that we can just see like a mass movement of creative potential just coming out of South Auckland, whatever that looks like. I don't really care. We focus on digital content creators because that's just where the world is at at the moment yeah. and where young people are communicating and, and where you can get your stuff out there. Um, so, yeah, so we have a team of creatives. At the moment, all they do is they manage all of our brands and our creative for our brands and, and we're working towards some, some bigger plans in there. Yeah, so we've got five on the books at the moment, five paid creatives. And this is huge because it started with the two of you. Yeah. And now you have a team of? Fourteen. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty cool, eh? And that's 14 staff. We've got a few extras that sit on our boards and stuff like that as well. Yeah. And, and how many years? Three. Mm. Well, three since we started Ngahere, but, mm. but it's a been lifetime. A li- it's a lifetime of working towards yeah, yeah, I feel like it is. I I get that there's lots of, um, you know, it's, it's great to list off these things and it's amazing to go and we do this and this and this. Mm. But actually, Why? What is what is this all about? What is the co-papa that drives this beast of of amazingness? Because a lot of it is really not about you. No. It's actually not about you at all. It's about the potential in our people. Full stop. Like, and the fact that it just gets there's so many lies told over our people about who we are or who South Auckland is or who Māori are. There's so many statistics that try and try and box us into that and that just pisses us right off. Yeah. Like we're so talented and we have such a a, a strong fucker papa within us and, and that's what we're fighting for to see that happen. In our own little way, our own little slice of that, but that's what really drives us. And us as women as well. Like yeah. we've had to fight for who we are and where we are right now and, and we wanna make sure that every woman has a chance to do that. Yeah. 
I was going to say, hair tangata, hair tangata, hair tangata, but actually for real it is, it's people. I think yeah. it's the people that drives everything that we do and the um, potential, exactly. Mm. Seeing uh. people journeying with people, seeing them reach that, it's, yeah. But the it's fact awesome. that so much of that potential gets wasted or gets it's, it's ripped off, it's, yeah. it's incarcerated or it's stuck in ill health or... Yeah, stuck in in some kind of job or caught up in poverty, Um, and we can, yeah, we can have a little a little part to play in changing that narrative. When I moved here, I would see my friends, my some of my Maori friends or or family even get into an environment where there would be maybe more pakia or. uh, um, you know, maybe wealth or opulence, and they would just shrivel up Mm. and shrink away, and that. That used to piss me off. I didn't understand it. Why did they feel this inferiority or that they weren't good enough to be mm. in those environments? And I think that, yeah, that it shocked me at first and then it started to make me angry. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> you push the right button this time. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to outcomes... What are you hoping to achieve through the mahi that you're doing? Because there's there's the business element. So there's the business side of things. There's the foundation, which is, I mean, it's all kopapa driven, but that's hugely kopapa driven. And then there's also kone, which is uplifting uh, other pakehi mm. and bringing their business to the forefront in an online, you know, shop platform. What is it that you are hoping to achieve through everything that Ngahere Inc. umbrellas? I honestly, I, I still feel that that original vision of us having the ability to do what we want to do and how we want to do it still stands. Like I think one of the outcomes for me personally is to be able to find financial freedom. Um, and I think that's not just a, about me and my selfishness or just about me and my whanau, but I also think it's important for us to be able to um, lead the way Mm. and to be able to find that way. Because if I can find it, so can everyone else. But I can't sit there and tell them to find it without finding it for me. So that's a big driver for me as well. And what I, I guess one of the things that keeps getting me up every morning and keeps me going when I feel like it is too much. Um, And yeah, and because I feel like the rest of it will come with that. When I can, when I can achieve my own, you know, tenoranga tiratanga in that way, financially and in my own potential, then others can as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I haven't so much heard it spoken in that way, in the sense that when I find financial freedom then I'll be able to help others find mm. financial freedom. Because a lot of the time when we're in kaupapa-driven mahi, it's, oh no, I'll help others do this. And oh, well, whatever happens to me will just yeah. be a byproduct of that. And we often give ourselves so much of ourselves that we suffer. Mm. And then when we do prioritise ourselves, especially when it comes to money, mm we're looked down upon or we're criticised or there's also this uncomfortability that comes with money. And it's 
It's a topic that I love to explore because I get so uncomfortable with it and I love putting yeah. myself in un- uncomfortable situations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but talking about money and talking about wanting financial freedom, because mm. it does, it feels very selfish. Yeah. Um, and it feels very, because we're made to feel that yeah, way. Yeah, like, exactly. As Māori women... We're not supposed to uh-huh. succeed. Mm. We're not supposed to be wealthy. We're not supposed to have nice things because mm. that's not for our kind of people. You know, yeah, like yeah. the way that society has portrayed us forever is that we're not supposed to have any of that. So don't don't put yourself out there for it. Don't talk about it. Yeah. Don't aspire to it. Yet. And you know what? Like the thing that we always say when people always ask us, what is one of the needs that you see in the community that we're working in? One of the biggest things we say is our mindset. Mm. It's the way we think about money and it's our relationship with money. That That's the first thing that has to change. And I think, like I shared this just, I think last week at a quarter or that I was in, that for me growing up, money was something that always ran out. There was never enough of it. You know, you had to be careful with what you had. Um, you know, don't be too greedy and all of that. But But now I see money, it's just a resource like everything else. And it's a resource that can grow if you know what to do with it. And and if our people have access to it, it's a really awesome resource that helps us with health and happiness and all of those other things. And so I think even just that mindset shift, thinking about like that, who am I to think about money like that? Who am I to think about those big sums? I've had to overcome those those for myself. I still have to sometimes. But we're getting there, eh? Yeah. I think so. This one grew up with rich mates, so she's all good. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, give me the money. <laughs> give me all that money. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Sometimes we go into meetings and, and Bob will be like, okay, we don't have long. And I'm like, what do we need to know? How much are they going to give? And so that's what yeah. we'll go in and I'll be like, how much we haven't money? Got, haven't got long. How much money have you got? And what yeah. do you want for it? <laughs> and they'll tell you. They'll go, okay, we've got this much. Yeah. So um, I'm going to take you two with me to Hui so we can put some money from the goo. Okay. We got you, girl. We got you. Because I'm no good at asking for money. And I think the worst thing is that you walk into somewhere, like I I have um, a very beautiful, amazing Pakia allies who have been a part of my life for the last particularly five to six years, Mm. um, who have come into my world under different circumstances and and have just become part of my life now. And I have recently been in a situation where uh, I need to find, I'm always in a situation where I need to find money, but um, where I need to find large sums of money to keep Nuku going. And I said, oh, you know, but I've got to ask for this, this much. And she's like, God, that's nothing. Mm. I mean, yeah, but to me... That's everything. Like, yeah. to me, that's a huge amount of money. And she goes, oh, to the people you're asking for, that's like chump change. Yeah. yeah. So go in there and just say, this is how much I want. And I'm like, oh. And so it's been it's been such an interesting journey. And when I listen to the two of you, I'm like, I so need you in my life. <laughs> because I, I... You got us in your life, girl. Well, <laughs> yeah, but more directly at Koi, um, next week on Wednesday, <laughs> 7 o'clock. Have all your hooey here. But no, it is... And, it, and I'm not the only one. Like I'm not mm. the only one who feels this way, who has these experiences, who, and then and then the other thing is, you know, we um, we might get a bit of money and and maybe upgrade our house, and then we have people in in our worlds who are like, oh, you're a sellout because mm. because you're not like us anymore, or you're yeah. not this anymore, and it's such like money is such one of those topics that. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is, eh? It's it just, really is. Something it, it can that's ruin so, relationships. Yeah, it can like, be so polarizing yeah. for the people around you. Yeah. And then for others, it's just like, yeah. Yeah. And that's because in Aotearoa, we have such stark contrasts in the haves and the have nots. Mm. That's, that's what it yeah. is. We have people living in their cars. Yeah. And then we have multi-millionaires. And do you know what's sad is that you have people living in their cars who are trying. Yeah. It's not that you have people who are living in their cars because they're making dumbass life choices. These are like, can be parents that are actually both mm. holding down a job and kids, you know, and they're actually legitimately trying to get ahead in life. And I think that's, that is devastating when, yeah. when people are actually working and they're trying and they're still living in their cars. Something is wrong with our society. Yeah. Something's not and right. And I do, I do think like when when I try and, you know, just try and check myself, like what am I actually doing to contribute to things like decolonisation or to my people? Because it can be seen sometimes that we're just chasing money or or whatever, whatever we're trying to chase, being emperors. Um, but I do, I do think that, that that is a result of our, of our oppression and colonisation is our relationship, our mindset and our relationship with money, with putia what it means to us and and how we, yeah, how it can be the source of such raru, mm. even if it's p- p- even potentially more so when there's a lack of it than when there's an abundance. Although when there's an abundance, it's a whole other story, eh? Yeah. But uh, just imagine, imagine a a generation of Māori that were that had a healthy relationship with money. Well, how different it would look, and it and it's not selfish. It's actually about, like I said before, a resource. That enables our people. And I think it's our attitude when it comes to money. Yeah. Because when I think about money and having money, I think people who have money are assholes. Mm. Yeah. And that's because that's been my experience of yeah, people with yeah. money. Yeah. They're selfish, they're arrogant, they're often real assholes. They have no care for the environment or for yeah. society. And so when I think about Having money, I think, nah, I'd rather have no money and yeah. be a nice person. Yeah, totally. But you can have money and still be a nice person. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. 100%. Again, mind shift. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I have some friends that are like so so rich that their batch is probably worth, you know, two, two three million bucks. And if you walk, like if you meet them walking down the street, they are the most two unassuming people that you would ever, ever, ever meet in your whole entire life. They're definitely lovely people with money. Um, they also give them other keys to their bench. They do. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to rub shoulders. And this is why we are still friends. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, whenever you need like to win people over, it's like Bob. Can you go meet? Can you go meet with these people? She'll do it. Either that, or they'll piss her off, and she'll like shut them down. <laughs> Yeah, see, I'm just terrible. As soon as someone pisses me off, I shut them down and then I walk out with no money because I've, I've just told them to get And stopped. a parking ticket on my car. <laughs> um, I was, I, I'm about to ask you another question, but I just um, I came across because I asked you both what's a crazy but true fact. And, um, and Mal said, I wanted to be a hairdresser, but I can't even cut paper in a straight line. <laughs> and that just flashed before my eyes before I was thinking of the next question that I was going to ask you so um yeah great that you're not a hairdresser because i know unless you came up with you know there's like these um youtube videos you can watch now where people 
cut hair with samurai swords or they set your hair <laughs> on fire or they like the most stupidest <laughs> way of board. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's ridiculous. It's just it's, it's all cool. for the it's all for the TikTok. Yeah. Um <laughs> for the top top. <laughs> I wanted to ask you both who is an indigenous woman that has inspired you on your journey? Mm, you go first one. Oh, I found this question so super hard to answer. Um, but I did think you, um, of my mum, actually. Mm. It's a nice, easy one, but it's true. When I think about my mum, she's a whole lot of things, but she is actually the strength, I think, of our family. Uh, and not only our our immediate family unit um, and and my dad, but also of, of her family as well. If I look at my mum and how she interacts with her siblings, she's like the glue in in that family mm. and she's like the glue in our family and you know I often say to my dad that um I because my mum does everything for my dad <laughs> and and she is that strong woman behind him and I, I always say to him dad if mum goes before you you better learn how to fold your washing and clean up <laughs> after yourself because I am not picking up after you like she does <laughs> whatever he's moving in <laughs> but she's a strong woman you know what she's been through in her lifetime and she packed up three little, a six-week-old baby, two little toddlers and just followed my dad on a whim to move away from everything and everyone she had known and loved here in New Zealand and took us over to Australia. Oh, I wasn't even born then. Um, Had no friends, no family, nobody around her. And if I think about my mum back then, I think she would have been quite a timid woman. I don't think she would have been a brave, strong woman. So I think it would have been such a huge move for her. Mm. Um, uh, My mum came from a split family and... I think everything that she does is for her family. She loves her family so fiercely. Like we are her life. Um, me, my brothers, she was like your nan, Bob. Mm. She, her whole life was making a home for my dad, for us as children, for now her grandchildren. Um, and I think that from what she came from to where they are now, she's built an incredible legacy um, that she can be super, super proud of. And it has instilled some really key values into me as a woman, as a wife, as a mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dinner's beautiful. And yeah, I mean, I think the same, like my nan, my mum and my aunties, like, because I was raised um, with my aunties, like, because I was the oldest girl and now in my kind of line. Um, so my aunties were always around and I have a really... I have an awesome relationship with my aunties now as well. Yep. It's um has its moments as, as a lot of them <laughs> do, but they've played a huge part from when I was little to even now. That that I, I just love having them in my mm. world. Having such strong women, we have really strong women in our whanau, our, our tane. Come on, boys. Um, <laughs> no hope. <laughs> yeah, but then also like as a young artist, like because I've always loved art. I think drawing and painting and stuff come through really early for me, and um, I remember as just a young girl seeing the mahi of um, Robin Kahukua mm. being really powerful for me. And there was a book that she put out called Wahine Toa that had both sketches and paintings of different um, wahine, uh, atua wahine, which I remember I just like poured through that. But I think I stole the book from my school so I could keep it. And <laughs> all the pages were like kind of crinkled and ripped. And I loved it. I would just stare for ages and ages um, at her drawings. And uh, like thinking back, like, I don't know if either of you went to the exhibition at, Auckland Art Gallery and there were some of her original paintings in there and it kind of took me back to the days when 
she was really the only person that was putting Atua Wahine in front of us well, back in those days. If it wasn't for her, if it wasn't for Robin Kahukil, I don't think I would even know much about it. I got a little bit from my koro, but I actually learned a lot more in reading my koro's books after he passed away. Well, but it was, I think it was that and what Robin Kahukiwa did for for wahine and for Māori art while I was coming through. And then later on, Lisa Reihana did some beautiful stuff digitally. I remember as a photography student, I was in my third year and I did a project on atua Māori and I got all my little cousins to pose as like different atua and I did these photos up and stuff. And then I, I remember like, you know, you have a vision in your head of what you're creating, but your skill's not at that level yet. And so you create it and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's not quite what I thought I was going to make. And then I remember seeing some of Lisa Rehana's stuff like in a, I don't know how I saw it. I wasn't re- wasn't like at an exhibition, it was in a book or something and I saw it and I was like, that's what I was trying to make, like straight yeah. away and it just resonated with me and I guess just inspired me as a as an artist as well and as a wahine Māori. So those are some that I've I've really looked up to and, and feel grateful for. I remember studying Robin Kahikiwa in my final year of high school mm. for art class and, and studying Māori artists, but having a wahine Māori yeah. artist who was creating such powerful imagery of wahine Māori. Yeah. Oh, that was pretty amazing. I don't yeah. actually realise the impact it had on me back then. Mm. Now that I'm older, I'm like, that That was probably yeah. one of the most powerful teachings yeah. I could have had as a as a young teenager. Yeah. yeah. Um, what is the... What is the greatest thing or one of the greatest things about being an Indigenous woman today? Ooh, that's a big question. The greatest things. You know what? I always have always loved, and I reckon we all love it to some extent as Wahine Māori, as being disruptive. <laughs> I think some we of us all love have it. it. More than others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I think, like, I think growing up, um, there were lots and lots and lots of times when people would tell you not to be that way. Mm. And I think what I love about now is there's this this incredible stirring and uprising where we're like, actually, I am this way and I will be this way. And like people like you, County, honestly, and what you do is so inspiring in that respect because mm, not yeah, only 100%. do you talk it, but you freaking walk it yeah. on a daily um, you know, you stand up for some big, like you fellas have had a big fight on your hands. Yeah. Um, something that fortunately I've never had to fight like you guys have had to fight because it happened before my time. So, but all that to say, I think our our time as Indigenous women to be Indigenous women and to be that, that fire in our puku and bring that out and see what our people need to happen. It's going to come through us. It's not going to come through the tani. Come on, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> I don't have my time. <laughs> we love yous. We love yous. Oh, two, one, two, eight, oh, five. No. <laughs> <clears throat> if you didn't catch that, there was oh, two, one, eight, oh, five. <laughs> Mana was looking. <laughs> just, just quietly. <laughs> Not just quietly. quietly. No. Um, what? Sexy. Um, Māori. Like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Not too picky. Māori be nice, but... <laughs> Not too picky. No, nice car. No. <laughs> <laughs> make, can make me financially free. Nah. Hey, look, if you have Tane in your whanau, you're more than welcome to message the Nuku page. I'll hook yes. you up with Manawa. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> Has that bought you enough time now? <laughs> <laughs> to think of your answer. What was the question again? Swipe left, swipe right. 
Um, I think for me growing up in Australia and seeing how Aboriginal people were treated, mm. um, moving here and and I think has really given me this appreciation of just being in, in my own, on my own land, on my own whenua. Like I feel like um, there's like a huge portion of the world's population don't get to say that. They don't get to, to say that they're indigenous to their land because they're living somewhere else or... And I think that um, people that have gone before us and fought the good fight have put us in really, really good stead to be, like you just said, Bob, at a place where we can really start to affect change. Mm. And I think that um, I I too, I come from, you know, a a family of strong women. I think about my aunties on my dad's side, my aunties on my mum's side, and they're all super opinionated. And they're all disruptors. Every single one of them are. Um, but it's about, I think, channeling it eh? and making it, I think, if we can collaborate and make one, um, well, I don't even know. But I think if we can channel it, now now is the time for us to really make change. I think that there's, I, look at your project, Nuku 100, and just look at the women, the calibre of women in the project that you've been doing. And I think we're just poised for a really, right now, to make incredible change for our wahine that are coming up. That is the perfect segue for my final question. <laughs> and I didn't even train you to say that last. Um, which is about these wahine that are coming up. What is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? Yeah. Man, just like... Like, I just see a future where who you are um, is just okay. Like, there's a there's a freedom that exists within there and a, and a peace and a comfort in who you are as a woman and who you are as a Māori woman or an Indigenous woman um, and that it's not something to be, that you have to hide or something you have to dull down to be accepted or something that you have to paint over so that you can walk in the room and be be there. That I think that that's it for me. It's more that that sense that you see in women when they are comfortable and who they are and confident in who they are. Re- regardless, I mean, whether the environment changes or not, that that's something different. But I think seeing our women um, just find that that inner strength in who we are and seeing that happen across across everything, and then using that to to activate what it is that that you have inside of you. I feel like we all have a little bit of a fire inside of us to see something happen. And if all of our wahine were engaged in that and able to outwork that, oh, this world would be a whole different place. Mm-hmm. I firmly believe that it's Indigenous women that will solve the big challenges that we face as a as a global community, <laughs> you know, like global warming, climate, poverty, starvation, all that stuff. I think it's Indigenous women that have the strength and the kaha to make that same thing but to make mm. that happen that's what I think yeah I mean I think that um, uh, for our indigenous women well, what I see at the moment is such a lack of confidence Yes, and I think I would if I think about a generation of confident I mean you just said it confident yeah, copy. but it's <laughs> that that is I think would be a huge game changer Yeah, and I think that we are, a lot of us are held back by, you know, years of intergenerational trauma, whatever it might be. And I think that comes with a whole lot of lies in your mindset and to see people or to see wahine break, 
free of those mindsets and really grasp onto co- the confidence to get to the point where they can just be comfortable in who they are. And, um, and I think that that will then come, with that will come empowering other, other wahine and then, and then we'll be unstoppable. Once we can be comfortable in who we are and comfortable to disagree with others, you know, you're not going to get along with everyone, but empower mm. each other as well. I mm. think that would be incredible. That's what I'd love to see. That's awesome. Thank you both for your time this afternoon. Um, it is, it, it has been really amazing to come in today to a space that I haven't been in for a long mm, time yeah. and see the transformation, yeah. see the physical transformation, but also see the transformation in, in the new team members and the mahi that you're doing and to see how that is impacting the community has been really awesome. Yeah. And that's a testimony to the both of you. Or mm. testament. <laughs> it's late in the day now. My, word, my words are slurring. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> to the both of you and the dedication that you have to the mahi that you're doing. Um, and I think it's amazing. And I know that it hasn't been easy. And I know that even getting to the point of starting and, and the whole process of getting it established was long and arduous and, and, <laughs> and lots of um, boxes to fill in and tick and, and lots of other people to imp- not so much impress but convince yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. which I know or can jab. be yeah, yeah. like really really difficult when you're in a position where you know what you're doing is going to be amazing you, and you've got to get other people to believe it but they can't see it mm. yeah. and so um, just want to mihi to the both of you for all of the amazing mahi for the incredible life journeys that you've both been on that have brought you to this point um, thank you for letting us use your podcast to get mm. a bit flash <laughs> I have to say I, I was a little bit nervous because I'm like Oh no, I don't have. I don't, I don't know what I'm My doing. My headphones not working. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so out of control. Um, but you know, one day when Nuku makes a dollar, we might be able to. <laughs> we might be able to upgrade. Or when you guys upgrade, you just you know pass hand me down. How dare you? Handed me down. Be cut Um, out. (laughs) But yeah, no, kia ora to the both of you. Thank you so much. We thoroughly enjoyed having you at Nuku Live last year. It's been amazing having you both on the Nuku 100 podcast. Um, Can't wait for the book to come out. So we're currently getting this book ready, whanau. It is going to be launched in Whiringa Anuku in October. Um, We are going to be inviting all 100 of Anuku Wahine to come along to the launch. And so if you want to meet Manawa Mal in person, um, you can wait until that book launch or you could just come (laughs) on down to to Grid Manuku. We're also here on the daily. I like flowers. (laughs) And her phone number is... (laughs) I like foot rubs. And we managed to get some kōrero out with just filling the whole podcast with laughter. Yeah, we did that too. That is pretty good. High five she to went us. deep. We went deep. We did. Um, but thank you both and have a fabulous evening and I know you have places to go and children to get home to, so kia ora. Thank you. Kia ora. Thank you. Thanks so much. Before you go, did you know we have a nuku shop? We sell nuku kākahu, clothing, whakakai, earrings, and gifts for mama. And we sometimes stock the products of our nuku 100 wahine. You can check it out at www.nukuwoman.co.nz forward slash hoko. 100% of all profits made in the Nuku store go directly into amplifying the voices of kick-ass indigenous wahine. Check it out today.